Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Live, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. Joining us this week is Sean Morani, founder and managing partner at Seed Stage Focus Parade Ventures, which recently enclosed a $40 million oversubscribed fund too. Before launching Parade in 2018, Sean co-founded Flight Ventures and also started a private share startup called LiquidNet. In this episode, we talked about the basics of LP relationship building, founder support during tough times, and his overall view on larger VCs investing at Seed. Hope you enjoy this episode. And as a reminder, you can find Venture Unlocked on both iTunes and Spotify. Please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. Without further ado, let's now get into the episode. Hey, Sean, it's good to see you. Good to see you too, Samir. So we won't get into your entire background, but I, I do want to start a few years back when you started Parade. And at the time, you know, you had experience both as a founder, as a, as a VC. What did you see within the seed market that presented an opportunity to your mind versus maybe joining another established firm? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was out of necessity for kind of the strategy and the way that I like to work with founders. And so I think previous to starting Parade, you know, regardless of the check size, uh, you know, I wanted to be that first call and roll up my sleeves and, you know, always be thought of as an extension of the team. You know, not meeting founders just to take their time, but to figure out how I could you know, really add value? Was it sales? Was it product? Was it go-to-market? Was it fundraising? Whatever they needed. Um, all teams are are very dynamic and different. And so, you know, the thought behind Parade is if you're providing that, you know, partnership, I, I you know, a lot of funds say that they provide that partnership, but honestly, I didn't, I didn't see that, you know, between co-investors and in the ecosystem and talking to my peers. And so I wanted to build a fund around that. And so, you know, what we did is, you know, we're in a concentrated strategy. So we don't invest in, you know, every company we see. We see a lot of uh, good investments. And when I say good investments, we have strong founders and they end up, you know, getting capital from amazing, amazing uh, venture funds. But that doesn't mean it's the right founder for Parade and, and for us to partner with. And so finding the right ones that we want to go to, to build something with um, and give that give that partnership, take a large ownership position and then, you know, be a consistent partner, especially in the early days, you know, at the seed stage, things are so dynamic, teams are very small, you know, your early stages of the product, you might not have a product. Um, and so you're finding you're getting that initial traction. And so we want to we want to provide that deep partnership, you know, meeting them very regularly, at least every other week, if not, you know, more frequently, and that can extend for not just it's not six months to 12 months or 12 to 18 months, because we give them capital and that much runway. Um, but this extends you know, to Series A and oftentimes, you know, way into the future because you are that, you know, one of those first large investors, um, large on the cap table. Um, and then you'd build that trust communication, just like a marriage or friendship. Um, and that, you know, that goes a long way. And so, you know, if you've had a prosperous, you know, fun up and down, you know, relationship, you know, you're often going to be leaned on well into the future, even when, you know, it's past product market fit, they're still going to want to call you and ask you around things. And so that that's why we, that's why we build Parade. One of the things that we often see, and it's not uncommon to see seed portfolios be 30 to 50 companies, sometimes even more than that. You spoke about being much more concentrated. And one of the, the questions that often comes up is, you know, at the seed stage, you really don't know what you don't know. These companies, in many cases, have no product, no real metrics to look at. And it's very possible that the casualty rate for these companies is really high. How do you mitigate, at least on the front end, with a concentrated portfolio that you don't run into a situation where too much of the, the portfolio atrophies by the time it gets to a series A or series B. 
Yeah, I mean, our, our portfolio was relatively large in Fund 1. It was 30 total companies. So nine core companies, which is our main strategy that I mentioned, and then 11 what we call strategic checks. And um, But we but we took four years to deploy Fund 1. So there was, there was tremendous time diversity, and it wasn't, you know, a deal a month, let's call it. So they were spread out. And I think you, you know, you might have seen, you know, sh- shorter time cycles. And so that's, that's a little different, I think, for us, you know, up front, first meeting, first meeting, we, you know, we, I always tell founders, you know, they say, you know, how do you want to present? And, and I said, however, you want to tell me the story, but really I want to take this 30 minutes and we always do 30 minutes. I want to get to know you, you know, like, can we, you know, you, it's, it's like the elevator test, right? Can you, can we spend time and you can find that out really fast. And so like, tell me your story. Why are you starting a company? And oftentimes they just want to jump into the product and what they want to build. And I want to hear your story. I want to hear why you're special or, you know, what adversity you face in your life. And that can come out in a personal story um, or, or maybe it's career, or maybe it's a little bit of both, but it's all personal. And so how, how did you meet your founder? You know, just understanding that that person across the table. So that's very important. Uh, you know, if it, t- it kind of doesn't feel right after that first meeting, no matter what the opportunity is, you know, I tend to we tend to pull back a little bit. And so that, that's really important to us. And then, you know, we, we also tell them that we like to do diligence uh, and, and what that encompasses. And, and we try to articulate the best we can. And, and it can be you know truncated or, or shortened, um, especially if we're working with another partner that we've worked with many times that we trust. You know, maybe they've been doing diligence and work and we can draft off of that. But we tell them it's it's not just you know doing references or customer calls or technical diligence, which is you know setting them up with people to take notes and send them to us. But it's also spending ten to fifteen hours with them because you mentioned you know this could be pre-product early traction, so you're really betting on the future, and so you need to spend time with these people and to understand their product vision. You know what is it? Um, are they going to be able to articulate in a way to raise more capital down the road? Um, because it's still not going to be a ton of traction at the next round. It may be a if we do pre-seed to the bigger seed round or or to series A and maybe even series B when they're just starting to see pro- product market fit, especially in these most recent times, you know, where things were getting done earlier. And so can, and then can they sell this vision to, to new employees? You know, if you're trying to hire the best of the best, they probably have an offer on the table from Facebook, Google and I'm, I'm, I'm getting on, we're getting on the older side of things now, Samir, you know, but when we were graduating from college, they weren't paying engineers like they are today. And these are life-changing dollar amounts right out of college to the best of the best. And so you're competing with that because ultimately, if you can sell that vision, that's going to build a stronger team. That's going to help you move faster, right? That's going to help you hire better people. Um, And so, you know, we want to see some insight into that. You're not going to solve it, but hey, do they have the potential to do that? Can they be a life-changing founder? Can they be generational? We, We can't find that out, but we can try our best. When you look back then of the 30 deals, and presumably you've, you met with hundreds and hundreds of founders that you ultimately didn't do deals with, are there any commonalities that you can extract in terms of things that you believe make a great early stage founder, and maybe some red flags that would cause you to lean back from an opportunity? They all, we all look for, we look for, and I think we do a pretty good job of this, people that have like similar value sets, even if, you know, they're younger, like I, you know, I'm married with kids and I live in Los Gatos, which is kind of suburban, but you know, they don't need to do that, but you can figure out if there's alignment um, between you as humans. And I think that's very important because I think just like when you have a friend or even I think people that I gravitate towards, there's common ethic and moral high ground that, you know, that I spent with the people that I spend time with. And I want that to be consistent in our portfolio. And so I think you can figure that about people. So I'd say that is a constant trait across our portfolio, just like sounds trivial, very good humans, people that we, you know, if they succeed or fail, hopefully we still have a good experience. And then that trust and communication can, can lean into better partnership and, 
and uh, and communication and and maybe, and maybe it doesn't work that that company maybe we back them again because we've also built that foundation and they want they want to work with us um, and that that's start you know I've only been in this business for eight years now and so you know you're starting to see that happen once or twice uh, you know a year for, for what we don't like is I just don't like you know transactional I mean I had a founder a couple of weeks ago introduced by someone that you know I've worked with many times on the on the investor side and I told them the exact same thing I told you is like well, you know we do the work and maybe we can move faster because we worked with that person before and then. You know, we rescheduled. I did some work, and they scheduled some, a call a few days later. And uh, you know, they said, "Well, we're trying to close today or Monday." It was Friday, um, and I was like, "Well, you know, as I mentioned before, that's not going to work for me." And you know, best of luck. Keep me updated, and maybe it was a pre-seed round. Maybe we can work with you in the seed stage because we can do that with our fund size. But you know, it became kind of transactional, and it it, it told me that they didn't really value, um, you know, what we had said and what we set up to do, and some don't. And you just realize that it's not always for us, but you know, the transactional, Hey, timeline or raising caps or whatever it is. Um, you know, that's not for us, but I think also now in this dynamic market that has changed, you know, with the, with the markets, you know, we, now time has kind of swung back a little bit to the investor, um, which is good for us because we've always kind of been, you know, quote unquote slower, even we've done deals in a week or two, but that's apparently a snail's pace, um, at the, at this stage sometimes, but you know, if if you're transactional and you want to move fast and not get to know um, us, it's it's not a fit. Yeah, it does it, it does definitely seem like the pendulum has swung where you know different parts of the market either are completely seizing like the late stage and you know seed deals are still getting done, but it does seem like the the pace of deals is is much slower and certainly the time you have to close a deal is far different than it was a year ago. When you were going through, and you mentioned a four-year deployment pace to do those 30 companies, you're looking at you know roughly seven companies per year that you're ultimately doing. At the time, especially in 2020 and 21, from a competitive standpoint, you know there's so many seed funds that were writing checks, you know, often at the meeting or right after the meeting. What did you have to do from an adjustment standpoint to make sure you were still competitive during those times? Yeah, good question. I guess maybe I'm not as smart as those people. You know, it's one thing that I realized if they can if they can get it, digest all that information that fast, or they're asking better questions in that 30 minute to an hour meeting, or, or maybe you know, maybe I'm being a little facetious, but you know, um, I think I think I've just gotten better, and that might be maturity with just FOMO, um, and I and I mean that in all aspects of my life. You know, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to go to that event. Um, I don't need to be in that deal and we're comfortable with our process. And I think, you know, in the last one to two years, you know, just being really comfortable and, you know, who, what parade is, which, who Sean is, um, how I make decisions, how we do diligence, how we pick companies. Uh, there's many ways to slice the, you know, slice the onion, you know, at the, at this stage and, and, you know, we're comfortable with that and we have peers that are good at other things and we can work with them and, and live off their compliments and learn from them and hopefully evolve and get better. But, you know, just being very comfortable in our skin and what we do. And, and then, you know, that, that also is from like feedback from our founders, feedback from our peers, feedback from LPs and building trust with them. Um, and so, you know, I think all the way around has given the confidence because as you know, if you're a seed stage investor or a pre-seed investor, it kind of takes a long time to be do well, uh, meaning to have those successes and and so probably even that right just putting out you know you, you've known me for a long time Samir and we've we've been in a lot of good companies but to see them really mature and say hey I took that seed risk and now this company is at series D E and is worth billions of dollars I just you just need to wait you need that time um, and so we've had that time now so maybe that's given confidence I don't know I think it's all a confluence of all of those factors but probably honestly I think just 
being around and getting a little older makes you a little, you know, more relaxed and, and confident. Yeah, and it, it is it is a long term thing, and I think people sometimes forget how long it takes before some of these companies mature and before you can actually send money back to your investors. Speaking of investors, you brought up LPs. You recently closed Fund Two, which is three x larger than Fund One. Tell us a little bit about how you got there, because you know, in one way, it's it's a great time to be now deploying. You're, it looks like you're going to continue the same type of investing methodology as Fund One, slow deployment, which I think everyone is now doing. You know, given how the markets changed, but tell us a little bit about what you did between Fund One and Fund Two to be able to raise. 3x more, and I think in a in a time frame that was truncated relative to the, to the fund one raise. Yeah, I mean, look, every every market that you fundraise in is different. It's going to be different. So you know, taking the lessons I was getting from or from myself and learnings and feedback and realizing just like markets were dynamic, dynamic and different from when I raised the first time. But also, I was on a different fund. I was on fund two and. There's just so many levers to pull that it's just really hard. Um, I think the most important thing that we did is build, you know, going back to, you know, the, the fundamental building blocks of relationships is like building good trust, partnership, communication, you know, with our original LP base in Fund 1. And so, as you mentioned, Fund 1 and Fund 2 is a similar, is a similar strategy. Uh, the difference, you know, from, from an a allocation perspective is in Fund 1, we didn't allocate much capital uh, to our follow-on. Um, and so in fund two, we're more traditional where we're, we're probably going to do our pro rata through series A and most companies In fund one, we are, our LPs actually, we, we did invest in follow on and we oftentimes did, you know, super pro rata. So invested more than our ownership in our better companies. Cause we also had the relationship and they wanted us, you know, to on board, which is another net positive. Um, but a lot of that capital in those special purpose vehicles, uh, came from our current LP base. So, you know, someone committed 250. K, you know, small money, but to my fund one, which is around $15 million, over time in those years, they ended up really committing to me like a million dollars sometimes, 500K, which was way more. Um, and so that was really interesting. And so then over that time, you know, we built even deeper partnership. And even a lot of these LPs that we had in fund one were people that were friends, but, you know, you know, going into business together is very different. So we ended up going in business together and then just building deeper partnership on a on a on a co on an investor and partner level rather than a friend level, and you know everyone had you know I think when we come back came back to market that support was there, and then they realized you know just structurally there's going to be less opportunities to double down and make that SPV or special purpose vehicle independent direct decision because we're going to be doing it out of the fund, and so that also I think catalyzed them to deploy more with me. We also have net new LPs. Um, and that just came, I think, from being in the market, you know, introductions from friends. And again, it helps, you know, that Roman numeral change, um, as simple and silly as it is, even if we're all things being equal, if you've done that, we're doing the same thing, it does matter. So, and then the markets, I think people were more successful getting some money out. I think there were a lot of those things that helped us, but I think it's really just like, we had a strong foundation. We're like, Hey, our original LPs are putting in most of this fund. Like, do you want to join the ride? So, so when you look at your your fund too, which I know is north of forty million, how much of that is from your existing LP set versus net new LPs? Definitely, well over fifty percent um, is from fund one LPs, but I'd say probably like slightly under. Maybe it's like 60, 40, 70, 30 original LPs to net to net new. As you look back then on going from fund one and fund two, you mentioned the existing investors effectively being a little over half and. That speaks to higher total dollar amount than they committed in Fund One. 
knowing that many of the investors were not your traditional institutions, but they were the family offices, the high net worths, were there things in particular that you did between those raises that really engendered the type of relationship to get them more excited to do a higher amount in fun too? I don't know, man. I'm me, you know, and I and I I like to I, the way I partner with people is I'm always available and communicative. And if they need to get a hold of me, if you're a twenty, I had twenty five thousand dollars checks in fund one. I had a million dollar check in fund one, but I treated them all the same, you know. And so that's just how I work. Um, you know, I know some people will say, "Hey, if you're a small check, you have to pay it all up front," or you know, they're too small to. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't. Yeah, everyone's money is hard-earned money if it's individual if it's a family office you know i respect the dollar and and that's just how i treat all of my lps no matter size i want them to be comfortable i want them you know i want to make them money and i want them to be happy with the partnership you know and and that's how i've approached them all and so i think that's just and that's just how i behave um i'm not you know saying anything about anyone else um but that's just how i work and i think that work has worked well for me um you know some people might say it's not scalable or it's not worth your time but when i take people's money i take it seriously and and you know we're not fully institutional we do have some institutional capital you know thank you allocate fund of funds you know and and others um but you know we we just want to you know we want to be good partners um and that's just how I behave. And so I think that's just, just having more of a long-term mentality, I guess, Samir, you know, is what I'd say is just like, we want to be long-term and reputation matters. And again, like going back to partnerships and relationships, like at the end of the day, every night, you know, every morning I look in the mirror and I see myself and I need to live with it and be happy. And that's my sound silly to most people, but like, that's why I treat my partners with respect and compassion and friendship and partnership. Yeah. And I, I know you do that with with a lot of the, the folks, regardless of, of size, including some of the high net worth individuals and families. One of the things that, especially in today's market, where many of the institutionals are pulling back because they have their own issues from an asset allocation standpoint, is a lot of managers have to raise only from you know those family offices. The longstanding issue is that group of investors is kind of opaque. It's hard to find them. Where have you been most successful finding these families? And ultimately, what advice would you give to somebody that's starting like a fund one or even a fund two that's looking to expand their LP base? Like what what's worked for you? I mean, I'm a, you know, me hand to hand combat. I don't know. It was like some, they would come out of everywhere. And I mean, people told me that in the beginning, they come out of the woodworks, you know, and they come out, you know, they're under rocks or whatever analogy you want. And like, literally that's the case, you know, and they all have different processes and just the variability around decision-making is crazy. Um, the appetite, like I've, you know, I've seen family offices, quote unquote, that write $50,000 checks and totally undress you and do a crazy diligence process. And I'm sure company founders see that too. And then ones that write, you know, million, $2 million checks that have very short processes. And so like, that's what you're going to get with family offices. Um, but I think the best thing to do is lean on your partners that have seen you work and that want to vouch for you. Um, you know, that's been very fruitful for us. I'd say that's where most of the net new uh, bigger checks came from in fund two or, or partner relationships. And I, you know, candidly, I'd paid that forward with them, you know, before it's like made introductions, you know, that's Samir and, uh, you know, some folks that, you know, didn't convert for me converted for them. And so, you know, and then I wasn't, I wasn't shy to tell a couple of those folks hiding the hall, made the, uh, uh, you owe me, you owe me, help me up. And, and, and they came, they came through and, and, you know, just like said, you're, you know, they're, you're a good partner and that, that goes a long way, you know, um, of course those people do their own work and everything, but starting, you know, you know, starting at the 50 yard line instead of, you know, at the 10 yard line is better. 
And, and I want to go back a little bit to kind of where we are right now, now that you do have capital to deploy into a market where, you know, it does appear that not only valuations are resetting, the time horizon to be able to make decisions is, is much longer than what we saw. And it's unlikely things are going to revert back to 2021, given where the Fed is and inflation. But what does that actually mean for you? Because on one hand, certainly you know, the valuation environment is, is probably going to get healthier, although it's seed, maybe it doesn't matter as much. But ultimately, there's also more risk of downstream capital not being there at the levels that we saw, you know, the last few years. How do you think about investing in today's market when you have to navigate not only, you know, the return aspect, which is, you know, invest in great companies with great founders, but also underwrite against some of the risks that might be there in terms of downstream capital? Control what I can control. You know, I can't control that type of stuff. I can control my partnership with my founders that we work with um, and just like help them build good, you know, businesses. I think it's a great time to like really question your unit economics and your business model and to build like a sound business. And, you know, if you if you do that, you're going to be successful. Like, are you going to raise that gaudy numbers? Like, again, I can't control that. Um, sometimes it's a sector issue. Sometimes it's a macro issue. Sometimes it's interest rates, whatever it is. And like, these are things that we can't control. And so I try to really, you know, I, I mentioned having a long-term mentality, you know, as we run this fund, like impair, impart that long-term mentality on founders. And if you really want to build, again, you know, going back to how long it takes that seed, if you want to build a multi-billion dollar business, like, are you going to do it through five rounds through series E or is it going to take you through series C to get to that, you know, billion dollar mark? Like, that's probably the wrong thing to focus on. The right thing to focus on is to grow and grow fast because that's what you need to do when you take venture capital. Um, and you define that fast and how fast and you can do go super fast, but you're, you might, your unit economics might get out of whack, but you know, how can you, what is a balanced way to grow, to build a long-term sustainable moat and business? You know, that's what we want to focus on. And, and I think that's, that's one foot in front of the other, man. Like no joke. Do you think that there's anything that's different in terms of how you're approaching, you know, leading some of these rounds, i.e. more capital, making sure that they have runway to survive, maybe not 12 to 18 months, but maybe 24 months plus, and then ultimately anything you're changing or thinking about on a reserve strategy, knowing that the marks they need to reach to get to a Series A may be much larger going forward than what we saw, you know, really the last decade. Yeah, I mean, just trying to keep them keep them more disciplined where we can. I mean, what's we you know what we've been up to the last one to two months is like going back in the portfolio and like you know trying to get them to get more capital and or rethink their burn rate or hiring plans or you know do a riff because they hired too fast. And honestly, the the ones that are the 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 companies that have had the hardest time in the past like one to two months have been the most successful companies. Um, and you know why is that is because they were they were able to you know attract more capital. And when you attract more capital and you're growing fast, what do those new new capital providers and allocators want to do? You know, they want you to continue to grow really fast. And to continue to grow really fast, you need to hire a lot of people. Um, and then when the market turns and you're, you know, the the milestones and the goalposts change, uh, you got to look at your burn rate. And it might be a little too fast. You know, you might be burning too much money because, to your point, there's not much capital out there. So you revisit the structure of your business. And so ultimately, that's going to mean probably letting people go that you hired in the last six to twelve months. Um, because the marginal utility of that, you know, or, or of that person maybe wasn't as high as those original people that you had hired, you know, those, those talented people, you know, from X company you used to work with or from your network or uh, whatever it is um, that were referred to. And so that that Delta and that, you know, that has created a problem for these big companies. And so they have to 
you know, I think these CEOs have been able to go through really hard, you know, trend time periods where they have to make, you know, structural decisions that are very emotional because we as investors are abstracted from that. Um, and it's all the successful companies. And so, you know, at, at six months ago, they're like, oh man, I want to be that company. And now, you know, it's not always awesome. Right. And that's, but that's whether the CEO founders, whether they're getting paid the big bucks still are going to make a lot of money if they see their company through the, through this time. And regardless, just make a big company. You have to make hard decisions, right? It is not always up and to the right, even for the best companies, even in a good time. Um, but especially, you know, we're seeing it, you know, acutely in this time and, um, yeah, we, we just need to revisit these things, but it's it's really hard. There's definitely a level of resiliency that's needed, and that goes without question. And certainly most companies right now are actually pulling back hiring and cutting back burn as much as they can to really withstand and survive this time. But are there times uh, where it really makes sense for a company in a market like this to actually hit the gas pedal, go faster when their competitors might? And what are some of the markers of those companies? I mean, you have to really trust your investors and that access to capital. So like to your point, like you're burning money. That's what you're saying, right? That means you're not making money. And that means you're going into your cash reserves. And so you're going to run out at a certain point and you're going to need to replenish those cash reserves. And so either that's going to come from your insiders if they're saying go, go, go or some net new investor. And if that net new investor isn't there, then you're not going to have a business because you're going to be burning money. So if you want to play that game and you're that confident and your investors are that confident and or they will backstop you at that moment, great. I think also this is a, you know, if things play out like the way people are saying, and again, I am not that smart. I do not know when macro environments come back. COVID came back way faster than we thought, you know, or when we thought we were in entering a recessionary period at that time. So I am not that smart to predict those things. Um, I, I control what we can control. And so I think everyone will point back just like they did to COVID if things do slow down. Hey, that was a murky time period. Um, you know, no longer is 5X growth at the early stage, you know, the new norm. Um, we can go back to 3X year over year, the 333. I'm an, I'm an enterprise investor. So 33322, you know, it's been talked about growth. Like now, now that's good again. It's great again, right? And so we can all, and even slower than that, it's okay. We're taking care of this business because we want to be in business. We don't want to go out of business. And so, yeah, can you take advantage of these markets? But like, if you're an enterprise business, like because things are slowing down, people are making on the buyer side, decisions are making, getting made slower. So like, I tend to, I don't know. I don't know if that's always possible. And it's obviously very idiosyncratic to the business and the sector and a lot of different things. So it's hard to make that blanket assessment. But I think for the most part, like it's a great time to reassess your business and say like, Hey, let's just get fundamentally sound and, and then rebuild. Right. Rescale, rehire, you know, you know, reaccelerate our hiring, I think, is a better way to go about it. And that's how we're coaching our founders. And so this, this next question kind of falls into the uh, the bucket of you can't really control it. And I don't think anyone knows, you know, how to prognosticate things perfectly. We don't know what the markets are going to look like. We have markers that indicate, generally speaking, the direction of the market. If you look at venture as a micro part of the macro and we've seen so many firms uh, launch over the last five years. In fact, I think it was like 1,100 firms, almost 200 a year, ranging from you know funds that were like five or 10 million all the way to you know much larger firms. Are there certain firms or certain types of firms that you think are going to be much more vulnerable to a sustained downturn? And are there certain types of firms you think that are actually going to benefit from the resetting of the environment? And so what does that next couple of years look like in your mind in terms of venture? 
I mean, I think the long tail is going to have a really hard time. I mean, to your point, if it's like a $5 million fund, you're also like not throwing off like a ton of fees to be able to like pay yourself and live. And you might have to really question like, is this for you? I see a lot of people on Twitter that are like under 30, you know, preaching the gospel about venture. And I'm like, I don't even know what I'm talking about. And I'm 42. So like, like it's always a head scratcher for me, but you know, maybe they're real smart, but I'm sure that maybe they don't have huge funds and they have smaller funds and um, you know, they're going to be in from some like real lessons and, you know, what is that going to yield? Like, I don't know, um, more power to them if they want, you know, if these smaller funds want to continue down the path. But I think, I think being able to be, you know, quote unquote, institutional venture investor, you know, it's a, it's a long journey and the privilege it's not for, it, it's, it shouldn't be just like walk out and be able to do it. Um, I've always believed that. Um, and maybe that's the old guard in me talking, but I think a lot of these long tail firms may be from you know, people that are experienced and older to these younger people, I think it's going to, it's there's going to be some fallout and there's not going to be as many that are sticking around. They wanted to do this for their career. Maybe it's a side biz or something like that. You know, the nano funds, you know, so many awesome platforms that are, will support that, right? Um, like AngelList, et cetera, where you can raise capital. So I'm not saying they're going to go away completely, but are they going to be like, is that going to be that GP's or that pair of GP's job? I don't know. I think that we'll have a lot of kind of people out of going out of business. Um, so I think that's one part of it. And I think, yeah, people that have fresh capital are going to do really well, right? There's going to be, to your point, if companies are burning too much and maybe they misplay their hand and they don't hit those milestones, you know, maybe they get recapped and they're still a good business and they stick around. And I think that's not, that could be an awesome buying opportunity for a lot of people. Uh, and so I think, yeah, having fresh capital, you know, I'm, I'm excited to have, you know, we haven't made a first call on fund two, you know, we're waiting for that next company to do so. Um, but we're kind of, you know, watching and looking and looking for the right, the right founder to back. Um, and so I think it's going to be a really fun environment to, yeah, build big businesses because as you know, coming out of a downturn, um, this is where a ton of awesome companies are built. Um, and for venture venture funds, that's where they generate a ton of value because turns out entry point does matter. You know, getting in at a $5 million valuation or at the seed round and when that company is worth a billion dollars, right? Like that's a two, I mean, it's pretend they didn't raise any more money. It's a 200X uh, versus, you know, if it's a $20 million seed valuation and they go to a billion dollars, you know, it's a 50X. So that is very different if the capital deployed into those, those companies is the same. So, um, you know, I think, I think having that, you know, being able to control kind of valuation or getting in at the appropriate valuation that is aligned with the founder might be better for all, for all parties. And yeah, I'm excited, man. We, we talk a little bit about that long tail and there's, and, and actually, if you look at the number of firms, most of them actually fall into that long tail. A lot of firms, not, not a lot of capital, usually aren't price setting and very rarely are actually leading deals, you know, usually writing checks between five fifty thousand 50,000 and 500,000. But as, as you look at today's market, one of the things that we have seen is some of the crossover funds that last few years were just doing a late stage are going earlier and earlier and earlier and often cases doing seed and series A, which is on top of, you know, folks like Greylock and Andreessen and some of these other big firms. How do you think that affects the overall seed ecosystem? And what do you think the overall impact ultimately will be of, you know, the Tigers going and doing a lot of seed checks? I don't know, man, we do different things, right? Like we, we, like I was saying, how we work with founders, like it's very different from how Andreessen works with founders or Tiger works with founders, right? And that's the value. And it's up to the founder to pick who they want as a capital partner. So um, I, 
I don't, it doesn't bother me, you know, honestly. I, I, I think that's overthinking it. I think it's great if they can figure out how to, I think more money in the ecosystem, people have said this for a long time, is good. And I think the founders should find the right partner for them. And again, I mentioned a couple instances when it wasn't the right fit, but it doesn't mean that person or that company is not going to be successful. But again, I've come to a point in time where I'm like, okay, let's find the founders that are right for me and we can be successful with them, you know, because I don't know, whatever, you probably know these stats better than me around like how many unicorns are created every month, you know, it's happening more and more like what unicorn doesn't matter anymore, right? But it does when you run a $40 million fund, you know, and if there's more and more and people are investing more in software, you don't have to, there's plenty, there's plenty out there for everyone to eat, you know, and, uh, and venture is still growing and going to be very meaningful, but even if the dollar is kind of, you know, truncated a little bit, but this happens all the time, right? And so, you know, we'll have another growth period. Um, but I think, yeah, go earlier. If you can find the right deal, more power to them, you know, but I think our level of support is just different from, from those guys. They have too much. They have too much money under management. So it's like they're writing small checks. Like for me, if I'm writing a two million dollar check out of a forty million dollar fund, right? That's five percent of my fund. Two million dollars out of I don't know. You know how much money that Tiger has? Let's say because they're on the extreme other side. Two million out of whatever sixty, fifty billion, thirty billion. I don't know what it is right now. Is zero. <laughs> so it's a, it's a different product. It's look. I mean, it's a different product for the founders. But I think it's great more money out there for them let them make the decision and i think founders making those decisions is important because like that's what we have i find i look for good decision makers right like that's what we like who's gonna make the right product decision who's gonna make the right hiring decision who's gonna pick the right follow-on partner right these are all a series of decisions and ultimately that is entrepreneurship so i, I want to end it with a quick speed round if that's okay and you know i want to start off with the uh, the biggest contrarian belief that you have in the world of investing you can find you can find deals anywhere. I think you know I've I've been told from you know I've been told so many by so many people. You know, I remember there was a company that I, I was almost my first deal out of Fund One, and it was uh, in Latin America. Um, and we ended up I ended up becoming an advisor of the company. It was a good friend of mine. And at that time, like no one was doing Latin America. And so I think it's just like not being maybe it's like not being afraid to take risk, which might sound laughable, um, but risk changes all the time. Um, and now Latin America is like super hot fintech Latin, you know, people have Latin partners and funds dedicated to it. And so it's really important for a venture investor to just like figure out, you know, where the puck is going and take risk and appropriate risk. And I think if you can do that in a systematic way and you can be wrong sometimes, that's like part of the business, but if you're right, um, and when it does become hot, you've been on the right, the, the, uh, value oriented side of it. Um, you can make a lot of money. And so um, I'm just not a heat chaser. And I think that's been a very awesome way. And like, that's not something anyone told me. Yeah. And, and it was easy to chase chase heat, certainly during, uh, you know, the last few years. And a lot of people did get pushed toward consensus. Because you do consensus, it's more likely those companies are going to get up rounds at the highest valuation. People forget risk reward. It's like fundamental, dude, you know, and so like, it's like, you just got to remind yourself of that, you know? Well, well, speaking about all of your experience, you know, as a professional that, of course, venture for eight years, but before that, you did a whole host of other things. What's the biggest career lesson that you've learned along the way? I think playing the long game, you know, just is important. You know, I mentioned it a bunch of times and just being like long term about just like your everything, partner relationships and making money or family and friendships. I think I think that's important. And then I think just surrounding yourself with great people. Um I still have 
mentors, friends from early in my career that don't do anything that's not really relevant to what I do today, but, you know, that have in their own way guided me in the right way. And I've had, you know, people that have been above me or that have been around the block a little longer that I'd say, you know, we're good mentors in some ways and bad mentors in some ways. And they might not even even been intentional mentors, you know, but like, I think there's always like people that are successful. There's a lot of stuff to learn from them. Um, and so, you know, I, to this day, right. Like, again, I don't have FOMO to go to an event, but you know, we were talking about this earlier, Samir, it's like, if you do a dinner and incrementally add some people that you don't, you know, that you don't know, right. They can still, you can, you know, you can add them to your network in a very curated way and learn from them and they can learn from you. And it doesn't have to be, you know, someone that's older than you can be a peer. Um, and so just like always learning. And I think that's really important, especially like I'm a solo GP, and so we don't have a, I don't have a partnership, you know, another GP around the table. And so I really need to, to continually challenge myself and learn. Um, and so I do that from bringing those people around me, from my co-investors, you know, from my investors, from my founders, of course, you know, and we're all, I'm just like constantly learning and trying to get better. Last question is just, what is the biggest misconception about seed investing? I was told by one of my LPs that, you know, it's awesome. And, and everyone knows who that person is, is, uh, like, they're like, just get the best deals, like go get the best deals. You know, like if you invest in Google, it doesn't matter what round, you know, you're in Google and you're gonna make a ton of money and your investors are all going to be happy with me. And I had to reflect. I was like, am I going to see that deal? Am I smart enough to pick the Google? Like, am I, are they gonna let me in the deal? Clyder is leading whoever led the series a, you know, back then, like, are they going to let me in the deal? You know, because if it's the greatest deal, like it's gonna, you're going to be scrapping to get 50 K in. So, um, you know, and that doesn't really make the, worth the model of my fund. And so we do that strategic check thing, but you know, I had to really like question, like, is that the right thing for me? And to your point, you said a lot of these nano funds can do that stuff, but I just, I was like, yeah, if I, I'll do that, that's smart, smart. If you can, if you can get into Google. And so like, I just realized that wasn't for me again, you know, and figuring out kind of what was right for me. And, you know, hearing that from like a very successful person or group of pair of people, you know, was, it was a hard thing to like say no to, right. Because they're right. Um, but again, it's, it's, it needs to be, it's, it's an end of, you're an end of one. Everyone, all of us are unique, um, as individuals. And so you got to do what's right for you. So I think that was, right advice it's you can read about it it's said over and over again but it just wasn't right for parade ventures and sean marani yeah you know it, it reminds me of like this whole concept of you know being authentic and just having gp investment thesis fit and that does mean it's different for every single person and i do think there's multiple ways you can make money in this business and you just need to refine it to a point where it's a game that you can win right based on who you are well, this has been a lot of fun, Sean. Again, congratulations on closing fund two. Certainly look forward to uh, to seeing the uh, the growth of the fund. And thanks again for being on today. Of course, man. Thank you. Thank you for your partnership and friendship. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Sean and Parade Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.